This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. An awful lot of uh, concern about the uh, city council meeting yesterday. It, the, basically, this had to do an awful lot with the LRT project in, in general, but more specifically about uh, the possibility, of course, of uh, having HSR transit workers operate and maintain the proposed LRT line. Uh, it was an interesting discussion, interesting debate. It was preceded, of course, by a rally outside City Hall that was organized by ATU, the Amalgamated Transit Union. And, uh, well, the vote was 9-4 to four in favor of uh, asking or demanding, I guess, depending on, on your perspective on this, that uh, the LRT project here be operated and maintained by uh, the uh, local HSR union. What are the implications? Why the votes? And uh, what's going to happen as a result of this? Well, we're pleased to welcome Donna Skelly, the city councillor for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain, to uh, the discussion here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Donna. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Excellent. We're living the dream. The wife is wonderful. <laughs> Enjoying these these warm summer days. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, this is good for me. Let's, uh, let's talk about the issue yesterday. Uh, you supported uh, Councillor Green's motion. Tell me why. Well, I actually, I met with Eric Tech uh, weeks ago when they started launching this campaign, and I think they had a very valid, effective argument. I don't have a lot of faith in Metrolinks, and I, I would rather put uh, my eggs in the basket of the, uh, uh, the HSR to operate the LRT than to leave it in the hands of Metrolinks or whomever they deem uh, will be operating the project. It's, it's this campaign that this union launched was, believe me, was the reason why this vote went the way it, it did and, and all of the developments that will follow. This was a grassroots, effective, well-thought-out, well-executed campaign, and I think that they deserve a lot of credit because they raised a number of issues that in the last 51 votes were never raised. Let me ask you about your your feeling on the project in general, and and notwithstanding the fact that I know that the the meeting yesterday was supposed to be specifically to do with this issue, uh, a number of the delegations got back into some of the minutia of the LRT debate uh, about the environmental project itself and and the ramifications and whether or not there's a business case, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you're on record as being opposed to this. Uh, why did you why did you weigh into this and decide? That, uh, that you wanted to support this? Have you thrown up your hands and say this is going to happen despite my protest and my, 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 my feelings that, that this is the wrong thing for Hamilton? No, but I do believe if we're moving forward, we have to do, uh, make the best of a bad situation. And I, would be, I believe that the ATU being involved in the um, uh, city running LRT would be, much, would be my preference. At least we have some control. You've been a city councillor, and you know it's much easier to... Uh, challenge and make direction from within council than to be working with um, uh, a government agency that's dictating the deem the terms of of an agreement. We saw the fiasco with with the stadium. You know, it, we weren't going to be on the hook for anything. It was going to be on time. Well, it's still not built, and we're in a, in a lawsuit, and we had nothing to do with it. So I I think that at least we would have some control over the LRT. Don't get me wrong. I still think it's the wrong thing for the city. In fact. As Councillor Green pointed out, we're now starting to get the real information that we've been looking for over these uh, last 10 years. And one of the most disturbing developments, and you cannot ignore it, is that as we move through this process and more information is made available, this LRT project would never have been approved by the province if the accurate numbers uh, were used when they submitted the proposal saying, you know, does it, does it qualify? And on Friday of next week, um, our new head of transit is going to be providing even more disturbing numbers regarding yet another drop in ridership, which just continually works against the whole argument that, that the city is able to sustain LRT. It's no different than saying we want an LRT project in Caledonia and fudging the numbers and sending them forward. Well, when the reality is they could not possibly sustain uh, an LRT project. Yet yeah, we did this. We submitted information with absolutely incorrect um, numbers to win this project and and to have approval for the project. And the numbers are wrong. And the real numbers, we wouldn't qualify for the funding. And yet we seem to be burying our head in the sand and saying, well, it's too late. Well, it's not too late. We're talking about a billion dollars. Which brings up an interesting point. And, and I want to go back to your opposition to the entire project, Donna. And uh, there are those that are feeling 
that the idea and the subtext of this motion was really to delay this project, to open up that agreement once again, with the possibility of it delaying slash scuttling it altogether. Uh, as somebody who's been opposed to this all along, it, it was that part of the reason for this? I don't think it's going to delay it, to be very honest with you. That may be hopeful thinking for people who are opposed, or perhaps it's just an argument that's being raised by people who uh, are, are a little jittery. But I've, I'm not so sure it is going to delay the project. But I'd also like to say that what is the timeline? It's a political timeline. It's about elections. We've got a, a council that doesn't want to go through the next municipal election based on an LRT project. I mean, that's really, what, what is the rush? There is absolutely no rush. Um, Councillor Ferguson raised an issue yesterday that the funding could be lost. I can tell you that Andrea Horvath is 100% behind this project, and she would like to see it, of course, uh, also uh, run by the HSR and the ATU, operated by the ATU. Um, so the NDP, if they form government, certainly aren't going to pull the funding for it. I know Patrick Brown's been on record saying he's not pulling the funding for it, in fact, the funding stays in the city. Do it with it the way you spend the money well, yeah, however but, you want. I know, I know that you spent a lot more time with Patrick than I have, but when he was on the program here a few weeks ago, uh, he said that he would honor council's wishes on this. Well, that's yeah. a rather ambiguous statement. Right now, council's wish is LRT. Exactly. So you honor it. and and, and the only But he didn't say LRT. He did not say he's going to go through with the project. He wouldn't pull the plug on anything. Ever. You, you, I know. He, I know. He, I'm saying he's going. That, to that's a guarantee. I'm hearing from you. I'm not hearing it from him. Well, he'll say he's not pulling the funding. But the so concern, Donna, is this, and let's 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 address the elephant in the room here: is okay. that the, some people that are supportive of this project think that that others on council are simply ragging the puck until the next provincial election, and then they're going to pull the plug on this thing. How do you pull the plug on it? Who's going to pull the plug? Well, I saw it happen in the early 1990s when we elected an NDP government here in this province, and they said, you know what, you're not building the Red Hill Parkway. Well, that's not... So don't, don't tell me there isn't a precedent for it. It has happened. Well, I, I, I don't know who's saying that. The only party that has said you're not getting the funding, and it was Ted McMeekin, you go back to the back of the line. So if anybody's going to pull the funding, it will be the Liberals. No, no one, no other party is saying it. So if this is a political issue, deal with, deal with the Liberal Party on that one. Um, otherwise, it has been, the funding has been, no one, not, no one I've spoken to, and I can tell you that, has said the funding's going to be pulled. I think that that is just uh, a tactic that is being used to push this through without real um, thought about how and what is best for the city of Hamilton. Uh, there's no rush. There is absolutely no rush to build this. When you say there's, there's no rush, I mean, there is always a time frame for any project, whether you're building a, an LRT system, whether you're building a stadium, whether you're building an arena, anything else. There are timelines, and there is a, a timeline that council has already agreed to about when you want to see this thing start. 2019 is when you're supposed to be putting shovels in the ground right now. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not at all concerned that, that if there is a delay here, if Metrolinx has to go out and retender this thing, that that is going to cause delays? We saw this happen with the expressway, Donna. Every time somebody stuck a, a, a monkey wrench into the works and delayed that project, the dollar signs just went up and up and up and up. I'm, I'm, as, a, as a taxpayer, I'm concerned that that's going to happen here. I'm not. I'm not concerned at all, and I'm. I'm surprised that it not is. Not everybody concerned. shares your enthusiasm and your confidence in this, though. I know, but I'm just. You're asking me the question. I'm saying I'm not that. I'm not concerned, and I'm. And I'm still saying it's a billion dollar project. You don't rush a billion dollar project because of somebody's concerns. I mean, you have to look at what's best, and if this meant that we need to have this owned and operated and maintained by the city, and it it causes a delay. This is the right thing to do. This is the right. We have a mess. We have a stadium probably in the wrong place because we were rushing um, a deadline, an un, a political deadline, and it's in the wrong spot. So why don't we do it right? This is a billion. Well, there were there were more. There were extraneous factors in the stadium thing. I mean, the, yes, there was Absolutely. a deadline, but the deadline was they had to get the damn thing built before the games. It wasn't just Absolutely. hey, build the stadium when you can. And council screwed that thing up from day one. And, and I don't want to go back over that now because that's. Sadly, water under the bridge, and I don't think the stadium's in the right place either, but we may disagree on where it should have gone, but it is what it is. But we don't want to see the same thing go on with LRT. We have a propensity in the city, Donna, and you talked about this for years when you covered city council, that these guys keep kicking issues down the road until finally they cost so much that you either have to say, okay, fish or cut bait. Is that what's going to happen with LRT? I don't know. We'll find out, but I do believe we need the information, and we... 
why was this not raised before? This, the, the only reason it was raised, this issue about who would actually, and I don't want Metrolink to have any further control over this project because I don't think that they're capable of executing things without a lot of waste of money. And at least we would have some control over I, I share your concerns about Metrolinks. So why is then this an issue? Isn't this the right thing to do? Well, I'll, let me ask you that. That's interesting. Because I, I, Eric talks about on the program, I got a lot of time for Eric. I think he's a well-meaning guy, and, and and I can understand where they're going. And I don't know that there are too many people in the city that wouldn't think, yeah, sure, the HSI should probably operate this thing. But the motion yesterday also included maintaining the project. And every time I hear the word maintain, Donna, I think cost. I think money. I think, in other words, that's going to be a burden onto the taxpayers now. In other words, if we have to maintain this thing, that means that that's, that's an operational cost that we weren't anticipating. Bill, do you really believe that when the, the contracts were are signed, that that cost of maintaining isn't going to be borne by the by the taxpayer? No companies coming into well, no, that you know, well, I don't know that it was, and I don't know that it wasn't, Donna. But the reality here is, that as soon as City Council accepts that they're going to through the HSR be maintaining this thing, you're right off the bat saying, yeah, we are going to pay the cost. There's no debate and discussion about it anymore. Absolutely, and we'll know what we're going to be paying. We're going to be paying it regardless. But we don't know. They will not tell us, despite the fact that they have a, a number of existing contracts with um, LRTs that are currently running to tell us what a ballpark of how much this is going to cost. But they keep kicking it down and they won't answer questions because the further down the road, the more difficult it is to say, look, we can't afford this project. Do you remember there was always how much is it going to cost to operate and maintain and if those figures come back and they're too high and too onerous to the taxpayer, we're not going to approve this project. But they will not provide those numbers, regardless of who operates it, whether it's HSR or a private consortium. The taxpayer is paying for this. Don't don't kid yourself. No private company is coming in and saying we'll bear the cost of, of operating and maintaining this. Absolutely. Not. I don't think the anybody's that naive. I don't think anybody's right. that naive that so they would even think that right. at this stage. So we're going to have to pay for that. But no, they will. We can't get those numbers. And it's later and later and later. And well, well, how much how many more millions have been spent? There's a, there's also a method to that madness. The more money you spend, the more difficult it is to say this may be the wrong project. We can't afford it. Tell us how much it's going to cost. Tell us that on, on, on Friday. But you'll get the answer. Well, it's going to take too much time. Really? You have an Ottawa agreement, signed agreement, Waterloo and, and, and Toronto. Based on those agreements, you can't give us a ballpark figure? No. But here's the problem. The, uh, the, the, what Metrolink sent out right now when they started their bid process, and I'll paraphrase this because I don't want to get into all the legalese, but essentially they asked people to come forward with, with their proposals to design, build, operate, and maintain. All right. Now that means private sector or whoever company, whatever company is going to be. So all those four aspects. As soon as you take uh, the operate and maintain out of that and say we're going to do that, you're telling every Hamilton taxpayer right now that's going on your property taxes. It is. Anyway. It's, it's not a debatable question anymore. You don't know that, Donna, because we don't know even who's going to do design this thing. So, in other words, you're jumping ahead here right now and saying, "No, we're just going to dump this on." And that's contrary. If you want to go back to the history of what City Council has done here, that is totally contrary to the initial motion that they passed way back when that said, "Yeah, we support LRT as long as there's no impact on Hamilton taxpayers." That motion yesterday which may or may not be ratified next week at council, essentially says, to hell with that, there's going to be an impact on Hamilton taxpayers, and we, city council, are the ones that made that decision. Bill, really, Donna, that's the reality here. Exactly, and I didn't, I didn't agree to it. I'm, I'm, well, you I'm voted for it. it. No, I didn't. You voted for the motion. Oh, for the yesterday's, oh, I'm sorry, I, I apologize, for the original motion. At least, I'm, I, well, do you want me to say let's kill the project? I'm saying that you have to at least have control. I want to know. And why can we not find out? Don't, don't, you know, as you just said, nobody is um, naive enough to say that the taxpayers aren't on the hook. We're on the hook one way or the other. At least we have control now over this project. I don't want Metrolinx to have further control. If this is making the absolute best out of a bad situation, we are starting to gain control. I don't want to be sitting at the table. And, you know, I, I can tell you what I think is going to happen. Metrolinx is going to come back and say, too bad, this is our project. They may well do that. And I think that's exactly what will happen. All of this other worry, worrying by people who think it's going to delay the project, this is Metrolinx's project. And this is an organization, <clears throat> excuse me, 
This is an organization I don't have a lot of faith in. They have a track record of, of boondoggle after boondoggle that cost taxpayers billions I, and I, of dollars. Listen, Donna, I agree. We're on the same page about that, about our concerns about Metrolinx. I get that. But Why the whole concept, nobody ever thought motion. nobody ever thought the province was going to walk in here and say, here's the billion dollars, by the way. We're going to do this. You guys don't have to kick in money like other cities do. So right. don't don't say categorically that it was all going to fall on Hamilton taxpayers. But what I'm saying is the motion yesterday takes that discussion off the table altogether and says, we'll, we'll assume the cost of all that maintenance. And I don't even know what that number is. So you, as much as you want to chastise Metrolinx, and I think there's some justification in going after Metrolinx for, for their lack of transparency, you supported a motion yesterday, and by you I'm talking about not just you, but council, the, the nine who supported this, that essentially downloads that cost onto Hamilton taxpayers, and you don't know the number either. So why would you do that with that lack of information? Because I'm making the best out of a bad situation, and I would rather have control. I do believe in my heart that we will pay for that one way or the other. When we sign that agreement with whomever builds, operates, maintains the LRT, one way or the other, the city of Hamilton taxpayers will foot the bill. I would at least like it under the jurisdiction of the city and run by HSR. One way or the other, we're paying for it. At least it's transparent. But perhaps the one thing this may do is force Metrolink and staff to come forward with information so that we can start basing decisions on what the real cost of this project is going to be. This has been denied. These figures, they won't come forward with it. I get that. And, 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 you know, a pox on them for doing that. But you... As council, just did the exact same thing yesterday with supporting this motion because you didn't know the cost either, and you well, threw your support behind this. I, I, I have to agree to disagree on that bill because well, we are going to agree to disagree then. But I mean, the numbers are the numbers, and you don't have the numbers yet. You decided exactly. to support it. it. It just seems well. We'll talk about this, but I'm sure next week as uh, council has to ratify this. Uh, you know the time limitations, and uh, we're right out okay. of it at this stage, Donna. But I do appreciate the conversation. Good Thanks conversation. for this. Thanks. Donna Skelly, of course, uh, Council for Ward 7. Uh, that was a motion passed, of course, yesterday. It still has to go to Council for ratification next week. So you get some thoughts on this. By all means, talk to your counselor. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Time for the Mayor's Town Hall. Burlington Mayor Rick Goldwing is with us here in studio. Good to see you again, Mr. Mayor. How you been? I've been? It's been great. It's been a wonderful summer. Maybe the weather hasn't been great, but... Uh, in Burlington, we take a break between basically mid-July and right after Labor Day for about six weeks. Uh, we don't have any committee or council meetings, and it's uh, a nice pace. Funny you should mention weather. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that, because uh, just this past week, uh, you celebrated a very inauspicious uh, anniversary uh, to do with a weather-related subject, and of course that was the uh, the now famous Burlington Flood, yeah. the day that, uh, that Mayor Goldring won home and found that he had an indoor pool. Yeah, well, more importantly, it was about 3,500 well, yeah, people. Yeah, you were just affected. one of many. I was just one yeah. of many, exactly. Um, yeah, we, we did have a bit of a media event uh, last Friday at, mm-hmm. at Burlington City Hall on the day, August the 4th, which is the third anniversary of the big flood we had. And the purpose of the, of the media event was to announce that uh, through the University of Waterloo, the province of Ontario, and the city of Burlington, uh, we are introducing a, a program where people can get their homes basically reviewed to determine whether they're flood ready. Uh, and uh, for $125, uh, people can have somebody come out, um, you know, people who are, are qualified to look at homes and get some input as to how they can make sure that their homes are as flood ready as possible in the event of extreme weather. Um, there was a pilot project we introduced last year. Now we're introducing right across mm-hmm. the street. It goes from August to the end of December. So we are making it really easy for people to have a review of what's required to make sure that their homes are as flood resistant as possible. Uh, and so we announced that uh, on Friday, and we look forward to having uh, many people across the city taking advantage of it. And I know there were smiles and and, and some pretty happy people at that announcement, but uh, but. Uh, just let's take us back three years uh, to that day. Uh, uh, this, 
uh, the shock, the the concern, uh, the 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 feeling that you had. I mean, uh, you know that, okay, weather events are going to happen from time to time, but this one was totally unexpected. It, it was bizarre. It, it was so off the charts as far as expectation. Uh, it was so extreme. The fact that we had about 190 millimeters of rain, as much rain as we get in all of July of August in an eight-hour period. And it wasn't just that eight-hour period. It was some of the intensity of the rain mm-hmm. during that eight-hour eight period. And uh, I was up at uh, my cottage with my wife in Halliburton. I get a call from City Hall in my BlackBerry on Civic Holiday Monday. When I looked at the BlackBerry and it says City Hall, I, th- I thought this cannot this be a good thing. This can't be good. So what surprised me, too, was uh, a recently retired uh, general manager from the city was on the phone. I thought she retired, but no, she still had emergency obligations for another few weeks before she officially uh, retired. So she called me to say that there was major flooding in the, in the city. She wanted to know where it was, and I wasn't anywhere close. Um, and she told me she would get back to me later. I said, what do you mean flooding? And, and I said, I, I just automatically thought of the underpasses because sure. we've had issues with the underpasses yeah. before. But no, no. She named every major road in the city of Burlington and told me that we'd run out of barricades to close the roads, which really puzzled me. I couldn't imagine what exactly what was, was going on. So I texted one of my daughters to take a look at the house to make sure our house was, was okay. And she texts me back about 20 minutes later. She goes, Dad, the roads are closed. I can't get there. And then shortly after that, uh, another daughter uh, called to say, you have to come home right now. You have five feet of water in your basement. And what really struck me that time was, well, it's not just me. It's not just our house. It's not just our house. There'd be so many other homes affected in the city. So without hesitation, we knew we had to come home uh, for our own home, but we had to come home because of the the city was going to have big challenges. It took us a while to really understand uh, the depth and breadth of the damage that people had in their basements. Uh, I remember the first morning of the flood after having about two hours sleep, and I'm on the, I'm on the, with CH, I'm on with the Weather Network. I had no idea as I'm talking about it, the depth and breadth of the damage that took place in the city and how many homes were flooded. Well, but because we've as, seen, you've seen incidents like this, and it, it does happen in municipalities, and and, and I know not too long after I got elected to public office way back when, uh, we had a water main break on, on one of the streets in, in my area. And uh, there are a number of houses affected, of course, right down the break. And you've seen situations like that. And, and you know, you, you do what you can for them. But it's 30, 40 people maybe that are impacted. This was a great, great area of the city that was, was impacted. And, and I, I guess it would actually take a couple of days to really kind of get some understanding as to the depth of the, of the damage that was caused. Well, because the water disappeared, yeah. you know, fa- fairly quickly. And so meanwhile, I had people that had four or five feet of water in their basements. And some people in a certain area, Burlington, uh, on Regal Road area, right by uh, one of the creeks, um, had water into their first floor. And actually, we had water into our first floor as well, but nowhere near to the degrees that some homes did on, on Regal Road. So it took us a couple of days to really understand the depth and and breadth of the issue. But what was amazing, though, Bill, is how beautiful the weather was the Tuesday morning after the flood. So you think you're driving in Burlington, you wouldn't really, unless you were experiencing something yourself, uh, generally you wouldn't really notice anything. But within two or three days, you saw all these uh, uh, restoration vehicles throughout the city uh, doing all sorts of work as far as helping people dry out their basements and to, and, and uh, dismantling their basements and gutting their basements to get all the damage uh, all the damage out in order for people to rebuild. The uh, the silver lining, if, if, if I could characterize it in that fashion, Mr. Mayor, of, of this whole thing, and it was an awful thing for an awful lot of people, and I, we talked with many of them, of course, over the, the subsequent days here on the radio show, they called in and talked about how it was impacting them. But it's the way the community rallied behind uh, those that were impacted by this and, and said, look, we got to do something about this. You people are not going to be left on your own. And that, yeah. that was, governments can do so much, but that was remarkable how the community came together. You know, even in little ways right at the beginning, there I remember being on Regal Road in that area, and there were people that had wagons, and they're pulling wagons, and they'd made a bunch of sandwiches and had drinks for people who were busy working and cleaning out their basements to try to provide them with some sustenance as they're going through the challenge of the first number of days and trying to uh, clean out their basements. And then, of course, we got the Red Cross involved, who were very helpful in connecting with people. Uh, We had uh, um, our firefighters and city employees volunteer to help clean out uh, people's basements. 
Uh, and then, of course, we rallied together with a fundraising effort led by Ron Foscroft and the Burlington mm-hmm. Community Foundation uh, to raise a million dollars in 100 days that was ultimately matched uh, by $2 million from the province of Ontario. So we had about $2.8 million that we actually distributed to 272 homeowners, people that did not have the right insurance or people that did not have any insurance for whatever reason that was. And uh, that was pretty special that we were able to help a number of people in, in, in need as a result of that. But of course, we went to work at the city, we went to work at the region, we did all this analysis of the stormwater system in Burlington, all this analysis of the sanitary sewer system uh, with the Halton region. And a year later, both the city and the region presented reports and recommendations to the council, which were supported unanimously, which really involved it, it involved significantly more funding for both sanitary sewers as well as stormwater. It's, it's amazing the way things have changed and I, I know that, you know, I don't want to go too deeply into the realm of, of climate change and the impact that that's having. Uh, there are still some people out there that deny that, and I, I see this on social media all the time, and I guess they're entitled to their opinion. But but the evidence is overwhelming that, that things are being impacted right now. We use the term 100-year uh, storms about severe weather and severe yeah. rainstorms, uh, uh, and that term, well, it's self-explanatory because a, a term, a storm of that severity usually only happened every 80 to 100 years. Mm-hmm. We're getting three or four of them every winter, every summer season now, uh, sometimes more in some areas, and, and the impact that that's having right now, that puts tremendous pressure on a municipality to try to deal with that because of the infrastructure needs. Oh, absolutely. You know, from a stormwater point of view, from a sanitary sewer uh, point of view, and one of the things I'm very pleased of, I'm pleased about, is the fact that at the region, we've implemented programs for people in certain areas of the, all the Halton region, and you can go on the Halton region website and plug in your address to see what funding sources there are for you to weatherproof your home for major water events. And you can, you can go on to find out that we have a a downspout disconnection program, a weeping tile disconnection, and some pump installation program. We cover 100% of the costs up to a certain level. We're also covering 50% of the cost to locate the sanitary sewer lateral. So with all the programs that we have in place now in Halton Region, um, and then with the city of Burlington having this pilot program with the University of Waterloo in the province of Ontario, um, with regard to doing an assessment of how flood-ready your home is, there's no good reason not to be prepared for the next one because there will be another one. Well, and we know that's going to happen. And and sadly, when we've heard stories of flooding in the past, it's usually been areas near water, and that's not, of course Burlington includes that, but I mean there are areas that were far away from the lakeshore that were right. still impacted by this in, in Burlington uh, simply because of the impact and the pressure that it puts on infrastructure. And we've seen variations on this. I mean, that was a severe incident in Burlington. Uh, $100 million worth of damage. That's yeah. what the insurance industry estimates. And, and and we've seen similar incidents since then, too. Not quite as severe, but still yeah. have, with an impact on this. Yeah. So for, for those that say, look, it's so the temperature's rising a little bit, so it's raining a little bit more. So uh, th- it does hit you in the pocketbook one way or another. You know, it's interesting. You look at the average weather and the average precipitation over certain periods of time. They are increasing. I mean, we're getting warmer, wetter, and wilder weather. But I emphasize the wilder. And the significant extreme weather events we get that we don't necessarily notice when we're just measuring average precipitation. Um, The extreme weather events are much more significant where you're having a lot more intensity of rainfall than we've had before, at least to the degree that uh, that we're having now is much more than we've had in the past. Uh, I got an email from somebody the other day who who lives down by the lakeshore in Burlington. And actually, I don't use their name. But they, they referenced the uh, discussion you and I had about a month or so ago about coyotes in, in this time of year. Uh, said that they saw a couple of them walking down the street early one morning, and it kind of scared the daylights out of them, and I can understand that. Uh, are you still getting concer- news about this, and how's the city dealing well, so with this? Less so. We had a major, we had a major meeting in early uh, June. Uh, we had, oh, my goodness, it was 250, 300 people attending the meeting. Uh, predominantly from the area around the Shore Acres and Roseland areas mm-hmm. in, in the south part of Burlington. Uh, there was a particular den uh, located very close to the Roseland community where there was uh, mother and father coyote as well as uh, four, I believe, um, baby coyotes that they had. And they get very um, aggressive in defending 
their babies sometimes. And uh, so we have a protocol that we've implemented that uh, responds to issues around coyotes. But just because somebody sees a coyote is no reason to get anxious about um, if they're taking action, if they're going after pets, if they're if they're being going aggressive and getting going after people, then we have the major concern. But actually, just seeing coyotes in the neighborhood isn't necessarily an issue. I know people extrapolate and are concerned about what might happen, um, but you know, you know, we've been dealing with wildlife in our uh, in our cities for uh, a long time, and coyotes are part of that now. Uh, we're trying to encourage people not to feed birds, not to ground feed animals, which can contribute. Uh, a big issue why coyotes come into certain areas is they have access to food. Somehow they have access to food. And whether it's a commercial establishments or restaurants or grocery stores that aren't handling their waste properly, our individuals are feeding, actually ground feeding other animals, and coyotes are getting fed as well. Uh, we have to make sure that people understand the impact of their actions with regard to the food source. I think we have to understand the reality in which we live, too. I, I had a discussion with one of my Ancaster neighbors about this uh, back earlier in the summer uh, that said that, you know, they get to stir because they see these things, and they're in our own backyard. And I said, actually, we're in their backyard. Uh, you know, th- they were there first. This was their area. We built housing developments up around there. And, uh, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, I, I leave for work quite early in the morning. It's still dark when I leave for work in the morning. And, and I've, I've seen coyotes walking, or, you know, they're running back and forth, and foxes and, and things of that nature. And, and they're, they're nocturnal animals for the most part, and they're doing their thing. I mean, they're out looking for lunch and dinner, et cetera, like that. But I've not heard any reports about anybody, for instance, in Ancaster that's, that's concerned about that or loss of anything like that or any attacks. They're kind of doing their thing. And then in the daytime, they're usually deep in the woods yeah. uh, staying away from us. We've had a, a few dogs that have been killed uh, by coyotes, but you cannot leave a dog... Uh, unattended. Um, I mean, that's one of the issues. You can't just leave a dog unattended in, in your backyard. You. Nor, nor, nor should you, especially during the springtime, because that's when the coyotes are out in, in a big way. And you shouldn't walk your dog uh, without a leash. Um, and, and maybe you shouldn't walk your dog at you know 7.30 or 6.30 in the morning. Maybe it's better to do that uh, in the daytime for a period of time, for a period of time. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Email uh, Mr. Mayor from uh, David Vandenberg at CHML. Bill Kelly says, uh, question from Mayor Goldwing. Tell us about the Seniors Task Force and uh, what plans are coming out of it. So I think uh, he must be referring to the Seniors Housing Task Force that I, that I started. We've had uh, three meetings so far. Uh, we, st- we kicked it off in April, I believe, when the Lieutenant Governor came to uh, to Burlington. She helped me facilitate the initial discussion. But I guess the big issue is, and maybe we'll have to talk about this more after the break. Yeah, we'll do a little more after that. I know it's very complex. But, but, the, but the big issue is, is that we're an aging population. And 32% of Burlington is 55 plus, and so we know where this is going. And we have to make sure that we have the proper breadth of services and the breadth of uh, accommodation uh, for seniors in our, com- our community. So we're focusing on a couple things right now, seniors housing policy, as well as secondary dwelling suites, which which uh, we can talk about further. Well, because that's a very contentious issue, and that, that does take a lot more time uh, because of th- there were some existing bylaws in some communities that were somewhat prohibitive about these things, and I know that communities right across the province have had to reevaluate some of those. But you, you tie that, and thanks so much for the tweet on this, David. You tie that in with uh, some of the stories that we talked about in the program earlier this week, one of which, of course, was the uh, the outlandishly high cost of, of retirement homes yeah. these days, and um, because there's really no restriction on that, and it's a supply and demand situation. Now, not everybody who retires goes into a retirement home. Right, right. Uh, I think 99% of the people probably want to stay in their own house. That, that makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah. But for financial reasons, sometimes for physical reasons, they have to make changes like that. But you want to make it as easy as possible to stay in your home. And at the same time, part Correct. B of that is, is if they can't, then you've got to make it as easy and affordable as possible for them to move into that other realm, too. And that's not always easy. Yeah, no, you're right. And actually, it's interesting. Last week, uh, Councillor Paul Sherman and I went on a road trip down to Detroit, and we met with um, the Presbyterian Retirement Homes of Michigan as well as United Methodist Retirement Homes of, of, uh, of Michigan. Um, and to find out what they're doing and how they raise money for retirement homes across the spectrum. It isn't just 
um, the affordable type of uh, retirement homes, but a whole wide range of, uh, of housing that they provide. And they've recognized that, that it's not a government issue. It is a community issue. It's a, it's a faith community issue. Uh, it's not just a government issue. It is a wide-encompassing a community issue, and that's why I set up this task force. All right, I want to talk more about that because there's, there's a lot of meat on the bone here to get into because this is something that impacts every city, including Hamilton, Burlington, and everyone else who's listening to us. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's the Mayor's Town Hall, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring is with us here in studio. I want to go back to the uh, trip you took to Detroit, though. Uh, because it, it had to do with looking into housing situations, and, and this is something that impacts every community uh, right now is affordable housing and, and affordable housing for seniors for for all demographics and for all uh, income levels in situations like this. But it also comes into uh, to people that are in that era, the upper air realm there, where they're starting to move towards retirement age. And do you keep your house? Do you stay in your house? Do you look towards retirement homes? Uh, there's a program that you were just explaining to me during the news break here that's going on in Detroit that uh, I, I find fascinating. And, and it's it's almost interesting from this standpoint, Mr. Mayor, that we, we think, well, boy, the, uh, the U.S. health care system's in shambles. They want to scrap the Affordable Care Act, and they want to, but they can't find another one. But there's some innovative things going on, and you saw one of them in Detroit, to do with health care and dealing with people that are in precarious financial and, and, and senior situations. They have a program called PACE, and it's offered in different areas of the, of the state of Michigan. How it works is this. It serves people who are eligible for nursing homes, uh, people that may not want to go into nursing homes, but they're eligible for nursing homes, and there may not be nursing home space available for them. So once they get admitted into this particular program, they have a plethora of different resources assigned that can help. How it's funded is both the state government and the national government provides funding on a per-person basis. So the organization has to triage the needs of all the different people in the program to determine who gets what. But if somebody so, needs, so you and I could both be in the program, but you may have different needs than I, Correct. And, and your funding might be different from mine. Well, and, and we don't know what funding we're given. No, we just not. know what services we're, yeah. we're given. Yeah. So if you need a wheelchair, it's provided. If you need occupational therapy or physiotherapy, that's provided. If, if your um, issues around diet, uh, you need a nutritionist, that'll be provided. Um, for example, when there's a, a, a potential emergency comes up with one of the people in the program, rather than automatically going to emergency, um, they have doctors and nurses that are assigned to this program and, and caseworkers. So the, the person on call would connect with the medical community. They would have their records in front of them, so they they would decide what is the best action. Uh, is no action? Does no action need to be taken, or should that person uh, be taken to emergency, or is there another course of action that should be taken? So what I was impressed w- by is how so many different services are included in one particular program, and they're not siloed, they're not separated, and you don't leave people to navigate this. Um, I was very impressed by that. And if you, do need to, if you do need to go in a nursing home, they will pay for it. The program will pay for it. But the objective is to keep people out of nursing homes. So one of the programs they offer included is a daycare program for people with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. They offer a daycare program. That's included. So you may ha- be living with a son or a daughter uh, or a spouse, and they're going out to, to work during the day. Um, and but you're you're being able to take be taken to uh, the person with Alzheimer's or dementia is taken to a a, a day a daycare program where they can be stimulated and looked after and so on and so forth. So this is all encompassing in one particular program, and I'm not an expert on it yet. But the idea of this is very intriguing. I believe we need to take a hard look at. Detroit's a city on the way back, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, our this, purpose this, was not to visit Detroit. Our purpose no, was to I, see sure. the, the, the health care system uh, with regard to uh, seniors, but also see seniors' housing. Um, but we did get a bit of a, a glimpse into what's going on there. Yeah, years ago, 08, 09, during the height of the financial crisis, they had like a 28% unemployment well, rate. And they were bankrupt. And they were bankrupt. And now their unemployment rate is less than 9%. So they still have a ways to go, but there's all sorts of micro- uh, businesses being started by millennial-aged entrepreneurs. It's quite an exciting time uh, for people in Detroit. A lot of people have invested a lot of money. There was money to be made when you're when you're investing at the bottom. 
uh, there's certainly money to be made, and uh, there's a lot of people that are investing in Detroit and are uh, expect to get uh, good results. And certain areas of Detroit are becoming more uh, gentrified, and they need it. I know gentrification can be a bad word. In this case, I believe a lot of areas needed to be gentrified, uh, so that's a good thing. We met a counselor from a suburban community of Detroit, and she and her husband are planning to sell their big house in suburbia and, and move into downtown Detroit. And that was never talked about 10 years ago. It's, it's amazing some of the stories we hear. Our, our, our good friend of the program, our Martinez Galenzi uh, from Hamilton here, who's a strong advocate for urban uh, development uh, and smart growth, uh, has organized a number of bus tours to places like Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, Buffalo, and things like that. And, and it's eye-opening because you see all of a sudden that, wait a second, we always have this picture in our mind of, of this devastated city with a rotten inner core. And, and, and you know, we'd wring our hands and say, oh, it's, it's too bad. Detroit's gone now. Other people looked at it and said, this is opportunity. And they're exactly. really taking advantage of it, which gives everybody hope. You know, it's interesting. You look at municipalities all across North America um, that are doing some neat stuff. Often, it's the result of a crisis. Often, it's the result of an economic crisis where their shopping mall went vacant, our schools closed, and that creates new opportunity for other ventures in the community and other different programs. And Pittsburgh's a great example of that from years yeah, ago. Yeah. And now Detroit's a good example of it. A good crisis creates great opportunities. Well, and it's happening in Buffalo, too. Uh, exactly. And, and by the way, the LRT is one of the catalysts for that, too. But I digress. Uh, listen, i got to ask you about something else, because I, I don't want to spend the whole segment here talking about housing, but there's one other element to this which is very important. Uh, the Canadian census data came out a week or so ago, and it was very, I think, instructive in many ways. And it also talked about a number of young people that are still living at home or yeah. have moved back home, yeah. uh, which is somewhat problematic because uh, previous to this phenomena, if uh, we can characterize it that way, uh, there were there were bylaws prohibiting uh, apartments in certain houses. They'd say that's a single family residential. You can't have a uh, a, a tenant in there. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. You can't build in law suites. Uh, you can't do have eight or nine people. Or you can't have mixed families in those sorts of things. And it was pretty adamant about it, and it caused a great deal of consternation. Cities are starting to modify this because of of, of some of this data that's coming forward now. So one of the things that we're looking at in the Mayor's Seniors Housing Task Force is the whole issue and opportunity around secondary dwelling units. Mm -hmm. And in uh, many areas in the city of Burlington, one is allowed to create a secondary dwelling unit and rent out that particular unit uh, to to somebody that you're comfortable with. And, uh, but it has to be a separate unit. It has to have a separate entrance. It has to have some other, uh, uh, other parameters as well as uh, separate parking. But it is a way to address uh, a shortage of seniors' housing for some people, and it is a way to address a shortage of more affordable housing for younger people as well, because typically the rents there are much less. So one of the things that we're looking at is the, the progress that has been made so far with regard to secondary dwelling suites. What is the policy we have in place now? What Should we make any changes to policy to make it more desirable for people to rent out their homes and people to rent uh, a secondary dwelling unit? Uh, if done right, if promoted right, and if we connect people properly, I believe we have a great opportunity here. Because I know the drawback and, and what some people are going to bring to the discussion is, look, at, we've seen this before, and it's, it's absentee landlords and properties start to run down. This is, this is a different situation, though. It is a very different situation, and it, it is nothing like that. I mean, the idea is you have the homeowner um, who may be interested in receiving a little bit more money every month uh, consider renting out part of their house, typically their basement. And if you have a separate unit there, and we have a program for Halton Region that will actually grant up to $75,000, I hope I have that number right, to help people renovate a basement in order to facilitate um, a secondary dwelling unit. Uh, anyway, th- that's an ongoing discussion, and if anybody has any questions, obviously they should contact their counselor. Uh, that's a fascinating development that's happening in Burlington and other communities as well. Jill, you are first up on the program today. How are you this morning, Jill? I'm well, thank you. Go ahead for the Good morning, Jill. Good morning. I'm from the Aldershot area, and we definitely have the same coyote problem that Roseland and Shore Acres is having. Well, in our neighborhood alone, we've had four cats go missing in the last... 10 days or so, maybe two weeks. So I have a couple comments for you. Number one, we want 
all those particular incidents to be reported. And if you go on the city website at burlington.ca, there'll be a connection there uh, that will show you how to report all incidents okay. with regard to coyotes. I guess the second thing is that people have to be very careful with their pets. So I know that uh, a number of years ago, uh, my wife and I had a cat uh, go missing. And it was a few days after uh, a neighbor told us that he saw a coyote on the street. And that was a number of years ago. So right. I think w- if people know that there are coyotes in the area, uh, they've got to be very careful when they let their cats out because they, they are putting their cats at risk. And you've got to think about whether you want, want to do that when there are coyotes in the area. Sure, you don't want to do that. But um, some of these cats have had the pleasure of living a normal cat life, going inside, going outside. And now that there's this issue, it's pretty hard to keep them in at night. They get they can get really destructive like our cat. He was once a feral cat. He is not to be contained in the house, unfortunately. <clears throat> so I'm up and down all night long checking on him. Secondly, you did mention that um, you went to the Coyote Watch meeting. And something I learned at that Coyote Watch meeting was that these coyotes are not indigenous to this area. They were not here first. Something has driven them here. Certainly, so, uh, certainly development in the area has significantly unsettled a lot of wildlife that uh, in, in some urban communities, you have, we have more wildlife than we've had in the past uh, because of development that take place in, in adjacent areas. That is a contributing factor as well. Right. So my question to you is, how are you going? How are we going to solve this? Are we just going to have to allow this to continue? It's out of control. So People are really up in arms. So first of all, we need to have all the details, and I encourage you to go to the website. We do have an escalation policy mm-hmm. where, when uh, we take a, a certain action. Uh, when uh, certain incidents uh, have occurred, and uh, we will and we will uh, trap coyotes if, in fact, that there has been a, a human attack, uh, then we do we do uh, we, we will we would trap uh, coyotes. But individual homeowners have every right on their own property if there's coyotes issues on their own property to track or, or to hire a trapper and trap coyotes as well. Okay. So. You know, individual homeowners do have uh, um, tools that they can use. You know, we're doing our best to try to uh, balance the needs of of wild animals and in our in our community. I know it's becoming more and more concern. Uh, I knew I do know that uh, if if we made a major decision to cull coyotes. Uh, we would hear from an entirely different group of people. So there's a certain balance that we have to maintain. I'm not sure if we're there yet, uh, but we continue to work on it. Uh, good luck with that. Uh, is animal control uh, a city operation? It is a city operation. Okay. All right, because I know it's not always the case in, uh, depending on the municipality. Uh, thanks so much for the call, and uh, good luck with that. I know. And by the way, when we said indigenous, I mean, the, you know, the fact that wildlife is around us. Uh, uh, as uh, Mayor Goldring mentioned, as uh, more urban developments are, are planned and built, obviously, uh, you know, if there's a nest of something there, they're going to move someplace else. And I think that's why you're seeing the incursions that are that are happening. Uh, I got a we got a few minutes left here, but I got to ask you about something else that's very important. I want you to put your uh, your AMO hat on for a second. The Association of Municipalities of Ontario, uh, but this is something that affects Burlington. It certainly affects Hamilton as well, and and it's uh, it's called it's the interest arbitration uh, topic. Uh, one of the ongoing pressures uh, that all municipalities face right now is the cost of providing for essential services: police, fire, uh, ambulance, things of this nature. Uh, they're not allowed to strike, of course, according to provincial law. Uh, contract arbitration and, and negotiation can be very, very problematic sometimes. And oftentimes, if those uh, organizations feel as if they're not getting the contract they want, they go to arbitration. Invariably, they side with those organizations as opposed to the city. And uh, that can be somewhat problematic when it comes to, to budgets uh, because they, they always come back to the city and say, well, of course you can pay more. Just raise your taxes. Of course, they're not running for office, <laughs> but but it is causing some severe budget pressure right now. And and I know that you've talked about this in the past, Mr. Mayor Goldring, and, and you've always said, look, what we need here is balance. What is AIM talking about doing, and what is a possible solution to this? 
Uh, that's, a, that's a great question. This issue has been going on for a long time. Amos quantified the issue, and they have all sorts of evidence that shows that emergency service workers have received increases in their wages much greater, are, are often double the rate of other municipal employees. So it's not just an affordability issue, it's a fairness issue as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we would like the provincial government to be open to figuring out a way that we can mitigate our concerns. Um, And it it appears at this stage that uh, the provincial government and the other political parties, both the PCs and the NDP, are not interested in in dealing with this particular issue. Um, So we continue to raise raise it. And every year at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario Conference, which is in Ottawa, early next week, it will be raised again. And the Minister of Labor Labor will be put on the hot seat to... uh, and we'll ask him the, the same question that he's always asked. Um, we, we have a challenge here. You know, there's a challenge with regard to the fiscal sustainability of municipalities in general, but one of the contributing factors is the tremendous increase above inflationary increases of the cost of emergency services and the ability of municipalities to force. Well, isn't, is, there's one thing that you can take for granted here is that wages and benefits are the number one driving cost with every municipality Correct. when it comes to budgets. That, that's, that's a given. Correct. Yeah, it's typically, it's about 47% in Burlington, but typically it's 50 or 55%, you know, across the board. And when you get into things like emergency services, uh, like you say, when it goes to arbitration like this, uh, invariably that puts more pressure on the city. And when we talk about fairness, we're talking about fairness for both sides. You want those people to be paid appropriately Absolutely. And, and paid for the work that they do and the great Absolutely. work that they, they do. They do great work. But at the same time, you've got to worry about the impact on, on ratepayers. For impact on ratepayers and the, and the impact on the... Uh, the the ver- or the the uh, varying wage rates with other unions within municipalities as well as the non-union workforce. So uh, you'll bring it up again, I guess. So when you so when Amo you head up, to bring Ottawa, it up. It's one of the most frustrating issues. I, I, we've had lots of discussion, um, but there's no willingness to make significant changes that are necessary on the government side. Uh, one of the reasons for that may well be because those associations, of course, really don't have much of an appetite for going down this road either. Uh, absolutely correct. <laughs> uh, absolutely w- correct. Uh, without getting into who's right or wrong about it, it just seems as if the taxpayers are the ones that are going to be left high and dry. I mean, we all want uh, the best from those services, and we get the best from yeah. from those services. But at the same time, you know, we we have to have uh, I, I, I think a serious concern and a serious discussion about how much it's actually going to cost. Right. I mean, I I recognize the fact that our emergency service workers do r- critically important work uh, for our community uh, and. And there's a, a premium to be paid for that. But how wide should the premium be? Because it continues to widen. And I guess that's our issue at AMO is that the, the difference between other uh, municipal employees and emergency service employees, the difference in compensation widens on a regular basis. Well, when you uh, come back next time, obviously it'll be after that AMO meeting. And I know we'll have a lot to discuss about that as well and the impact it's going to be having on uh, cities. Good luck in Ottawa. Maybe you can change a few minds. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and, and we'll see how it goes. Thanks for coming in. Great. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.